What's going on, everyone? Mike O back with another episode of Hobby Talk. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by my buddy Joe, who is better known in social media on YouTube as Silver Jackify. Joe, welcome to the show. What's up? Thanks for having me. I'm Mike. I'm uh, pretty excited to be on the podcast, finally. Uh, we've definitely been working on it for a little while. I'm definitely happy to have you. There's a ton to talk to. The timing is great, though, as Major League Baseball season has officially begun. They began overseas with the Mariners and Athletics, but opening day for everyone else, including your Yankees and my Phillies, starts next week. So uh, that's definitely an exciting part of the year, something to look forward to this spring into the summer and hopefully October as well. And that just means that we're in the uh, peak of the hobby, the sports card season, if you're into uh, just following stuff, because with watching baseball comes the thought process of purchasing and viewing and enjoying your collection of baseball cards. And we're going to talk about that uh, quite a bit tonight. How are you feeling about your Phillies this year? I'm uh I'm certainly excited. It's uh it was a long and grueling off season. I mean, it was exciting because they made a ton of additions, but yep. it seemed to take forever. Uh everything <laughs> took a while to develop. And it it's been a while for the Phils. They've uh they've had some lean years. They built built up a little bit. They had a strong start to last year, but they really went uh haywire this off season, so it brings a lot of expectations, and it, it's exciting. But, of course, uh, it's a good division. There's a lot of good teams. So we'll see. I'm trying to uh, keep the expectations, you know, not trying to get them out of control. Uh, I can't say the same for the rest of Philadelphia, though. People are going pretty crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I remember uh, I did a video about two years ago predicting um, the New York Yankees in 2019, I actually did the entire starting lineup. I, I don't know if you ever saw it, Mike, but I did. I had uh, Bryce Harper uh, playing, I think, left field uh, for the Yankees. So uh, it turns out, I guess I was wrong about about that one. The uh, the Phillies got him, but the Yankees, you know, they become a different a different team uh, over the you know since the George Steinbrenner years. You know, it's 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 under Hal and Hank, it's been a very very different team that's a little bit uh, more careful about how they spend their money, uh, probably because they've been burned so many times. <laughs> you still got Jacoby. Jacoby Ellsbury right now is, I think, the highest paid player on the Yankees right now, and he hasn't played in like two years. So that That's the risk of the big contracts. And hey, the big money teams can't afford to absorb some of those risks. The Yankees aren't going to get crushed yep. because they give out a bad contract or two, but if it starts to get out of hand, mm -hmm. that's where... It can hurt a team, even as big as the Yankees, and it can cripple a smaller market team. The Phillies, speaking on there uh, about them for a moment, like they had a high payroll there for a while in their heyday with the whole 08 team and kind of the team that developed after that. But obviously, eventually, they did have a few contracts that became bad, and uh, then they had a rebuild. So they really haven't spent a lot in the last few years, and they got a new TV contract, so they've had a ton of money to spend. I mean, there's a reason they gave Carlos Santana $60 million last year. They had no competition. They gave him $60 million, I think, just to spend money, just to not wow. look like cheapskates. But uh, they got <laughs> out of that. Um, so it's going to be exciting with Harper. And I'm sure as a Yankees fan, you're uh, thrilled and excited for another season, the quest to continue to uh, bring another championship back there. That's That seems to be the expectation kind of year after year, at least for the last uh, 
two decades or so. Obviously, they had some some troubled times there in the eighties, but uh, Yankees have been pretty good for a while now. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they've had kind of a um, a, um the, the beginning of the, this uh, spring training. They've had a lot of injuries, uh, which is not never a, an ominous sign, I guess you could say. You know, um, so. Uh, I'm hoping, you know, even you know, Greg Bird just uh, just got hit by a pitch. He's, he went in for X-rays uh, the other day, and then um, even the uh, uh, Lee Mazzilli came in as a guest instructor and uh, got hit by a pitch. So it's been kind of an ominous way to start the year. Um, but you know, I, I think they, they've got their their team is so deep with talent, um, and that is the nice thing about you know when you have deep pockets. You have guys that are riding the bench that would start for almost any team. So the Yankees are pretty fortunate that, you know, they could just take a guy like LeMahieu, who's been a, like almost a career 300 hitter in uh, Coors Field, um, and just pull him right off the bench and have him start if, if you need to. So, um, and then they just signed Gio Gonzalez, um, you know, cause, uh, Luis Severino went down. Um, so they have a lot of resources, uh, but, you know, it's never a good sign that, I mean, that's always, you know, as you know, it's it's all about staying healthy uh, in baseball, and it's very hard to win if you if your if your players aren't healthy. And you saw that last year with Aaron Judge. I mean, he was he was on the he he looked like he could have been an MVP, and then all of a sudden he gets hurt and he's out for six to eight weeks, and um, they really really missed him while he was out. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, hey, that's I'm, the I'm thing. Old. No matter how good the team looks on paper, you got to go out there and play and. It's a long season, and it's really difficult to uh, for a team to win the World Series. You think how long that regular season is just to stay healthy, just to get yourself into a position to play maybe a one wild card playoff game or a best yep. of five series. I mean, it's tough to get through those. And both the AL East and NL East, in my mind, are the two best divisions. I mean, they're just stacked. I mean, obviously, of the Red Sox who had that unbelievable year last year. I I mean, I'm sure it wasn't your favorite season of all time watching them, but I mean, no. you got to give them credit. Their regular season, yes, they, they rolled right through the playoffs. I mean, I think most people don't even realize the Tampa Bay Rays won 90 games last year. That's pretty freaking impressive. Yeah. Um, and then the NL East, the Nationals really don't have a weakness. They're a really good team. I mean, it's it's unbelievable they could lose a player the caliber of Bryce Harper and Honestly, their their team's still loaded. The Mets right. made some improvements. The Braves are still loaded and young. And then both of our uh, both of our favorite teams' divisions kind of have that one uh, cellar dweller that's among the worst in baseball with the Orioles sure, and the sure. Marlins, who are just <laughs> you know you just shake your head and go, well, "What happened?" <laughs> yeah, you uh, watch, be, you know watch out for the Mets. I know a lot of people in, in the local area. Are hopeful, with, you know, because the Mets, you know, they, with that pitching staff, um, if they can, if that pitching staff can stay healthy, they could be an, a, a really good team. And they have some some younger guys that are starting to, you know, come together. Um, so that's another team to watch out for in the NL East. Yeah, I think the Mets, that their key is certainly that pitching staff. I mean, they have right. the type of pitching staff that can pitch them to the World Series, like they did a few years ago. Yeah. But you know, if there's a lot of issues there. Might be tough to overcome, but we'll see. Baseball season is here. I'm thrilled, Joe. I'm sure you're thrilled. And with that, let's uh, let's get into the hobby a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about 
collecting and collecting sports cards, specifically baseball cards. And why don't you give those out there listening just uh, a little bit of information about how you got into this hobby and found your way into uh, continuing to collect cards, not just as a kid, but now as a uh, as adult. And once you're an adult, you're collecting even a little more seriously, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess I have a, a couple people to blame for why I got into collecting. Um, the, you know, the first person I would blame is is my dad. Um, so my my dad, you know, he he grew up um, in Queens in, in the 1950s, and uh, you know, it's funny because with you know, you grew up in Queens, and you had the Giants, the Yankees, and the Dodgers all playing every year for a World Series, and um, for whatever reason, he decided he was going to be an Indians fan, and um, so he uh, and I, I don't know why he was an Indians fan, but I, I always think about him like. I guess him and his uh, uncle Tony Gagliano <laughs> would sit by the, the radio and listen to uh, listen to baseball games, and he even remembers uh, collecting the 1952 top set as a kid. Um, you know, it's like that same old story. You know, he he would collect the 52 tops. He you know throw them against the wall, put them in bicycle spokes, and then of course his grandma threw away his entire collection. Um, and um, you know when uh, when I when I was uh, probably around seven or eight years old, uh, he took me to a an Indians game. It just so happened to be at Yankee Stadium, and um, uh, in that game, uh, I remember it was it like sometime in 1985 during uh, Don Mattingly's MVP season because I, I I remember Don Mattingly hitting two home runs in that game and uh, immediately becoming a huge. Don Mattingly fan, um, and then because of that, becoming a huge Yankees fan. Um, and, uh, and I remember, like, after the season was over, I, I, I really wanted to somehow have a, a piece, uh, in baseball. Like, I wanted to, to, I wanted it to keep going. But of course, you know, the, the, um, the season was over and it was winter time. And, um, the second person I blamed was I, you know, I remember going over to my neighbor's house and, uh, we would, um, we, like, I was a Nintendo guy and he was a Sega guy. So he'd come over to my house to play Nintendo and I'd go over there to play Sega. And I remember him breaking out his baseball card collection and, um, he went through all of his, his cards. And I remember, you know, telling him how big of a fan I was of Don Manningly. And so he, I remember him pulling out, uh, he had the 1984 tops. Uh, Don Mattingly. And I remember just this wave of jealousy kind of like <laughs> running, you know, coursing through me. And I was like, I need to own, uh, that baseball card. And, um, I just, I, I don't know if, you know, if you remember, you know, the late eighties, you know, collecting, um, you know, I go, the only way it, things have changed so much, you know, since we were, uh, kids and, you know, back in the day, you know, you couldn't just go on eBay and, you know, find the card that you're looking for, or, you know, it, it was, it was a lot more difficult. So the only way to find, you know, a card like that would be to go to a baseball card store. And, um, I remember, I, I don't remember how much it was, but I remember it was being, it was way over, like, it was like $30, which for, you know, someone my age, you know, when you're an eight or nine year old, that's like a fortune. Uh, so, uh, but I remember getting my, my parents ended up on Christmas day getting me this, the 1984 top set, uh, which of course included uh, the Don Mattingly rookie card. And that sort of hooked me. Um, and then, 
sort of the final thing that kind of, you know, it, it, the one, the final thing that really, really hooked me in, into baseball card collecting um, was the Beckett. Um, and so it's the kind of the final thing that I blame because um, I was sort of into, you know, I was, you know, I, I had to get the Mattingly card and I was collecting here and there, but one, you know, I had the ability to kind of look at, at um, in a Beckett and be able to, you know, look up, okay, my card is going up, my card is going down and I can, you know, kind of, I, I felt like I was, you know, following stocks or, or following statistics. You know, that's what I loved about baseball is, you know, following a baseball player, seeing how his, you know, his batting average went up or down and how, where he led in the league. Um, and now these were cards that I actually owned and I could watch the, the cards. And um, I, I don't know about you, Mike, but like that, back then, I, you know, I thought these cards were going to put me through, through uh, college and be part of my retirement. So well, obviously things have changed, but um, especially for 80s cards. <laughs> but <laughs> that's sort of my story. That's how I got into collecting. So. Yeah, there was certainly a uh, downfall in the value of uh, the majority of those 80s cards, but they're uh, they're finding a way to bounce back a little bit, which we'll get into. That's sort of like, to be honest with you, I mean, that's sort of the reason why I left the hobby, because, you know, in the, you know, mid-90s, you know, and, well, not to mention going to college and trying to meet girls, but, um, you know, it was just this sort of frustration that these cards, like, you know, all these cards that I collected as a kid were, like, they weren't worth anything anymore. And that, that kind of frustrated me for some reason. And then, you know, then when I rediscovered the hobby, I was like, you know what? Um, it's, it, you know, the, the fact like these, these cards bring back like such good memories that um, they may not be valuable, but they're valuable to me. So, Well, let's jump into this because this is something I had written down. So we'll, we'll chat a little bit about this and then get into a few other things. But uh, a couple of things I wanted to bring up was, you know, reasons for collecting, reasons for continuing to collect, especially as an adult, not not just as a kid who's just kind of buying some packs, having some fun collecting, uh, just collecting to collect. Uh, nowadays, I think there's a couple reasons why people collect. One is certainly nostalgia. That's why you like collecting players that you watched over the years. Um and different designs and cards that you have memories of, that's certainly a big reason. And that's one of the reasons the Topps products of Topps Heritage and Topps Archives are super popular. I mean, people love all the new stuff like Chrome and stuff as well. But those archives and heritage products bring back memories for a lot of people. But another huge reason for uh, for people collecting is the value. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're collecting to get rich off of it or you're collecting right. to sell them all and make a million dollars. Um, but there's something to be said about collecting something that's valuable. There, there's something that's fun about that. Whether mm -hmm. you're collecting old cards, vintage stuff, and watching them rise incrementally, incrementally uh, year by year, or if you're prospecting on new prospects or rookies that you think are going to increase in value, even if it's just a small margin. If you have two dollar cards that become worth four or five dollars. I mean, that piques most people's interest. I mean, sure, you have some people who collect 100% just for the love of it, and they they have no – value doesn't really get to them one way or the other at all. But that's – right. from my opinion, that's a really small percentage of the population. I think people like to collect things that they perceive as valuable and that are valuable. And you see that even with 
um, to take it out of baseball cards, even around the holidays, like the hot toy of the year. People are chasing it. Half mm-hmm. the people are chasing it because everyone's chasing it and there's this perception of value for it. Um, some people are doing that to buy it and turn it around and sell it. Other people are literally just looking at it and looking for an excuse to find it, get it, and give it to their kid who might not even want it just because of that. That value um, just hits a chord with people, I think, and gets people – it gets people's attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's it's sort of just – it's part of the fun, I guess, for me is is um, trying to predict uh, what what I think is going to be the next thing. Um, you know, you, you look at your you look at them, and, and that that was another thing with with um, what's been the beauty of YouTube is, you know, I would I would get these cards and I would try to show them to my friends or to my wife, and they would be like. I don't care, you know, and, and, and I don't know if you've had that problem and, uh, you know, and, and I was just like, man, I like, I feel like I'm the old, like last person left on the planet that still likes to collect. Um, and that was sort of the beauty of YouTube is like, you know, I, I love being able to kind of share my thoughts with people on um, where I think, you know, the hobby is going and, uh, part of the fun for me, at least, is being able to say, okay, well, you know, who are the, you know, the cards from, you know, a particular decade that I think will be valuable in 20 years? I don't know. For, for whatever reason, it's, it's, it's fun for me to, um, try to, try to guess as to what, what that will be. And then, you know, later on finding out if I was right or wrong about it. There's been many cases where I've, uh, made some really nice, uh, you know, purchases that have turned out really well. And there's also been some really, really bad purchases. But I, I think that's sort of the fun of it is, is the fact that you could, um, you know, if every, if every single card you bought, they all went up like at the same exact rate. Um, it wouldn't be as much fun. And I, I, you know, if, and if they weren't worth anything, um, I, I think that would, that would kind of lower the fun of it too, you know? So, um, that's just, you know, my, my take on it, I guess. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on with the whole value section. If it wasn't worth anything, I, I mean, I would still enjoy what I enjoy, and I would enjoy the base, the very basic tops Philly sets, and putting them in a binder year after year. I'd still look forward to that, but there would definitely be uh, a reduction in the amount of money people, including myself, would be willing to spend and put into the hobby. Right. If, if there wasn't a value where if something comes up or something happens or if you change your mind that you didn't think, okay, I can move some of this stuff and, you know, not be just stuck in a money pit with it. Um, I think of actually starting lineups because I was a huge starting lineup fan growing up, growing up in the eighties. I loved the starting lineup figures and I was, I was actually more into them than cards there for a time. Um, and then over the years, I made a bunch of connections with people. So I was able to like buy cases. I would like be buying cases of them and selling extras and being able to kind of semi fund the collection a little bit. Um, but nowadays, like I still enjoy them and I like, you know, every now and then I, I have a few. I don't have a ton, but I'll like see them at like flea markets and card shows. And there's just, even though a lot of people still like them and people will pick up from time to time, they'll go and be like, oh, let me go pick up the old you know, whoever their favorite team is, pick up those cards. There's like a stigma stuck to them now that they're not really worth anything anymore. And I think that's really hurt their collectability. There's a few yeah. random ones from the late 80s that are super rare that still hold a premium value. But it just seems like as a whole, a lot of people actually buy them now 
the unopened ones open them and get the cards graded. Sometimes the cards in a high grade sell for more than the card than the uh, figure and card do in the original packaging. So it's interesting. Wow. All right, so let's get into uh, a little bit of talk about the 1980s cards and um, some of the different sets uh, that you collected growing up, or different cards, or your thoughts actually on what appears to me to be. Uh, a reintroduction almost. It seems to me like, so we know, and it's well known in the hobby that eighties is associated with the junk wax era due to overproduction and things were booming, things were overproduced. And then you had the crash. It all became, I guess, quote unquote worthless. So people, a lot of people lost interest in it. Mm. Um, and there's still certainly plenty of it that doesn't hold a whole lot of financial value, but. I do feel personally like there's been a bit of a bounce back on those 80s cards. Um, do you have any specific thoughts as to why, or do you want me to give you uh, my thoughts on it first? Well, you know, you know I was, um, I, I, I brought this up to, uh, up, up to Mike before the, the podcast, and I was looking at the 1989 Beckett. And um, the interesting thing when you look at the Beckett, um, you know, obviously there are cards, um, there are players that didn't pan out, you know, like your, uh, Jerome Waltons and your, um, maybe your Greg Jeffries, you know, those cards aren't worth as much as they used to be. But, you know, when you look at the, the prices of cards from the 1980s, you know, and, and this is 30 years later, by the way, um, they really haven't changed, um, <laughs> that much. Um, but one thing that I, that I have noticed, and even, even vintage cards, I mean, I was looking at the 52 tops Mickey Mantle. Um, it's listed at $6,600 in this 89 up with the 89 Beckett. And, um, you know, $6,600, it's a lot of money, you know, um, and if you, you, even a Mickey Mantle 52 tops Mantle today in a PSA zero or a PSA one is, is going to go for five to $10,000. What has changed, what I've seen, what has changed in the hobby over the last 30 years, like if I were to have a time machine and kind of tell myself, um, it's really, and I, I know you know all about this, Mike, is, is it's all about condition now. It's, it, it's become, um, a hobby where, um, it's not good enough to have a card that's in near mint condition. Um, people nowadays want, it, it's condition is everything and, Having a card that is perfect is so important to everybody. You know, the perfect corners, perfect centering. Um, and you could have cards that, um, you, you could even see that with 2018 baseball cards where a card, um, you know, raw will go for $30 and a PSA 10 will go for $50 and a black label, you know, which is, you know, your, your Beckett. You know, 10 on the corners, 10 on the edges, 10 on the centering, 10 on the surface. A black label will go for $100. And um, if you look at the cards from the 80s, because we, we all sort of took care of our cards uh, to a certain extent, but to, to have a perfect card you know, from the 80s in a perfect PSA, a PSA 10, um, it's exponential. Um, the value of those types of cards, um, especially if it's a, you know, a, a big name guy, um, you know, there are cards like, a, you know, especially if you look at the Tiffany cards, which are limited supply. And then if you can get them in that, that high grade, 
Um, it doesn't matter that they were mass produced. I mean, those, those cards, the Tiffany cards, which, which weren't mass produced, uh, will go for thousands and thousands of dollars. And I've been watching these types of cards just grow exponentially every year. Um, including, you know, one of the cards that I bought, I, I think about a year ago, the 84 Dunross Don Mattingly. Um, I bought that in a PSA 10 for about 600 bucks and I think it's selling for over a thousand dollars now. Um, and it's just, it, it just goes to show that people want to collect cards from the eighties, but they're just not interested in, you know, uh, the Norm Charlton's and the, you know, the Cal Daniels that are in terrible condition. They want the special cards from that time and they want them in like a special condition. So if you have, um, there is room, huge room for growth, um, you know, for eighties cards. And I think that a lot of people want to like are kind of rekindling their, their love for the hobby. Um, you know, now that, you know, there are people like me that are just kind of, they have some disposable income. Um, but they want the best. They don't want, um, you know, those cards that are at the bottom of your shoebox. They want, you know, the best. They want the eight, that 84 Dunruss Mattingly in a PSA 10. They want that Jose Canseco 86 Dunruss. Um, they don't want it in a, in a crappy, you know, with a bunch of rounded corners. They want the perfect PSA 10 version. So that's my take, but I, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a, a chance on that, Mike. What, what are your thoughts on it? I have nothing to add. You literally just took everything I was going to say, and, and I'm glad you did because it worked out perfectly because it was super well said. Um, the, so the 80s cards, obviously, the production was very high, and a lot of people collect it. I think the hobby has come back a lot lately. Over the last couple of years, I think it's grown a ton, but it's still not at the level. Um, sure. From a pop culture perspective, um, as it was in the 80s and early 90s, I mean, that was where – people who probably weren't even that much into baseball kind of collected. Like everyone was just collecting cards. It was one of the things to do uh, if you were younger, but I think you hit just about everything that I was going to say. I think a big reason that we've seen a bit of a boom in the eighties cards is the reintroduction of collectors of former collectors. You do have some people who are just getting into the hobby, but I think you have a lot of people who collect it. Um, Maybe not super seriously back then they took their break, they grew up and now they're, getting back into the hobby so they're being reintroduced and they want to buy back stuff they don't have or they want to buy improved versions of what they have you know that they found um so nostalgia is a big reason as well i think nostalgia sells big time across any platform and you see it you have the hall of fame guys the legends of course they're going to be widely sought after but you don't have to be a hall of famer to have a high collectability and that's something I like to tell people because I'll people will be asking me questions sometimes. And they're like, yeah, but is this guy going to be a Hall of Famer? I'm like, it doesn't matter. First off, yeah. you have to collect who you like and what you like. But guys can be super popular and still be collectible. Some of the most popular guys from the 80s are Jose Canseco, who's not a Hall of Famer. <laughs> True. Your boy Don Mattingly, who is not a Hall of Famer, who may find his way there at some point. I'm not saying he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. I'm just saying he's not currently a Hall of Famer, but super popular. Yep. You have Daryl Strawberry, who's still he, – he's not at the level of those two, but he's still a beloved player that people think back on. Man, he was so good. And Bo Jackson, who unfortunately due to injuries never kind of became what he could have become. Those are four of the most collectible guys from the 80s. None of them are Hall of Famers. So I think they're all really popular for that nostalgic reason. 
the reintroduction of the hobby is bringing in people who are looking for these cards, and you nailed it with the high grade because I think anyone could go and find these cards from the 80s in a 6, 7, or 8. But finding a 10 is a super, super challenge. Even if you go and buy a box of cards and you happen to get one, got to remember they were large sets. They were 700 you know, card sets. It wasn't these 100 card sets that come out now. You open a box and you find one. It's so likely to be off center. It's so likely to have some sort of chipping because they weren't exactly made on the highest quality uh, cardboard necessarily. So, I mean, finding high grades is tough. Finding high grades just in a, you know, an old collection is hard enough because I think people took care of them, put them in binders. You even had top loaders and soft sleeves, but you could still chip those uh, corners in the soft sleeves yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's so funny because my my dad preached to me uh, condition is everything. I mean, he preached that to me every single time. Every time we went to a card show, and um, and I put all my cards into um, you know in, into the pages, into the top loaders. But it, I look at my cards now that I grew up with, and they're all they all have like rounded corners, like something. You know, I, I tried to take care of them, but you know, maybe just being a kid, I just didn't take it seriously enough I, I don't know i don't know what it was but it's so hard to you know i i remember I, there, there was one psa submission that i did where i submitted a barry bonds uh 86 clear update um and it turned out to be a psa 10 and that was like one of the coolest things that i've ever like because that was part of my childhood collection and for that to come back as a psa 10 was just so, such an awesome thrill you know to, to be like wow that's a card that over all of those years, has been able to, you know, um, it come back as a PSA 10. It was, it was really, really exciting. Yeah, and even if you thought you were taking care of your cards growing up, sometimes you were doing damage to them and not realizing. Yeah. I actually look back on my 89 uh, Upper Deck Griffey that I had from a kid. I've had it for years in the screw down. My dad put it in a screw down for me, and I remember taking it out, looking at it, and thinking, oh, maybe it's something I want to get graded. I took it out of screw down. I was like, oh, this was one of the non-recessed screw downs. So the corners are all squashed. So it probably come back altered. <laughs> like uh, it still looks great. I put it in a in a magnetic or whatever. So it's still cool. Right. I'm going to keep it forever. But I'm like, yeah, right. it would have been way better off in a top loader. <laughs> but yeah, I think the registry is another thing that is something that has helped. Um, I think it's helped all card values, all graded card values. And I think the amount of people who are actually involved in the registries is a relatively small number given the amount of collectors out there. But it's certainly something that boosts value because it gets people – some people are competitive with it. Some people just want to be best. Um, but that – I think that helps boost – one, it boosts the high-grade cards because people are trying to look to get them. And I think it just boosts people looking at even the – not low grades, but like eights and nines because they're picking up cards just to fill out sets and stuff. So I think that's been a big thing across the board, including the eighties. And I know, I guess it was Beckett that put out that article, uh, top 80 cards of the eighties, which I, Mm -hmm. I've watched videos on it and I I haven't read the article, but I've been watching videos and it's just cool to go through and reminisce about some of those cards and see them. And I think when lists and stuff comes out like that, it becomes a conversation piece it boosts interest and interest is everything. And there's a lot of interest right now in eighties cards. 
Yeah, I, you know what? What I also like about like people always ask me, should I get my cards graded? And one of the things I like about getting cards graded is, you know, once they're encapsulated, I feel like you know you can feel a little bit safer about the condition of the card. But it's also, you know, it's 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 a huge thing as a buyer. You know, if a card is already in that PSA slab in terms of reliability, I know um, part of the the problem, you know, for a while was like you'd go on eBay and and you'd be like, I don't, you know. I feel like this guy's trying to hose me. Like, I don't know if he's like legit and maybe you could look at his eBay score and, and that'd be one way. But now with the, um, you know, the fact that you can, you can, not only, um, you know, you have that kind of guarantee that it's, it's a legitimate card, but also, you know, like a PSA nine of a particular card usually goes for this. Like, it's very clear about how much that card is worth. Um, so you, you like you, there's a lot more reliability and it, it's a lot easier to kind of be like, okay, well, I I know how much I I should spend on this card because it's easy to look up. Okay, this card in PSA nine goes for this much. Um, I, I I've actually I, I just feel like it's it's made things a lot easier from a buyer's perspective and probably a seller's perspective as well. It's very you know there's there's less gray area in terms of is this card authentic. What it, like, what is the condition of the card? Cause some, you know, the guy can just say, oh, this is a mint card. And then you get it in the mail and it's not mint. Um, but when you, when it's in that holder, you, 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 you kind of feel a lot uh, safer about what you're purchasing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it, it definitely makes you feel better as a buyer. You, you know what you're getting. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of debate. Oh, well, PSA could be higher, should be higher. You'll see that on eBay a lot too. Undergraded. Okay, but <laughs> yeah, most of right. the time, it, you know, because when it's not in the holder, there's that gray area. Mint to one person might not be mint to another. I mean, right. there's, I, I think for me, I pay a lot of attention to detail and I look over the cards and I, I see little issues with stuff that I think a lot of people just, they look at it real quick and they don't, it doesn't, you know, it could be the smallest of imperfections, but I'm like, yeah, that's right. probably going to knock it down a point. So when right. you do have it created, you know what you have, like you said, and I think right. it makes it easier to sell things and buy things. And especially yeah, it, with vintage, it, it makes me feel better. I'm like, all right, I know what I'm getting. I don't want to go buy a card, save a few bucks, go get it graded. And then it's like, oh, yeah, this was trimmed or right. altered in some way. So Yeah, and, and, and I'm not saying it's a perfect system. Um, it's it's definitely not. There's definitely, you know, I'm sure there's there's different graders that, you know, some gr- that probably grade too high and certain some that grade too low. And I know over the years, like for example, with PSA, I, I feel like they've gotten more strict uh, with the way that they grade things. Um, so they haven't always been consistent through the years. Um, but you know, it's it's better than you know this this kind of gray area that we were in you know 20 years ago, where you'd go on eBay and you would just kind of go, oh, well, yeah, I don't know if this if this card is even a real card or not, you know, like I, without seeing it in person, uh, it. It's very tr- hard to trust people like on the internet, um, but that you know, for me, that that um, it's become a much more reliable process. Not a perfect process, but a much better process. There's no doubt about that. PSA has uh, PSA, BGS, SGC. The whole grading, uh, the whole grading turn that the hobby has taken has just taken mm-hmm. the hobby by storm. It's a it's a yeah. huge thing. It's bigger than I think some people even realize. People are super into it it's it's the current way the hobby is being collected and it's 
the future of the hobby too. I think maybe even more so. So be interesting to see where things uh, go. Is there any uh, specific uh, sets from the eighties that bring back the best of memories? Well, <laughs> uh, 89 Don Russ was always the set that I collected the most as a kid, but, uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, 89 upper deck, that, that was like, the, that was the set that kind of was this special set, you know, it was a, every pack was a dollar. Um, so I, I remember collecting 89 upper deck, um, 84 Don Russ was a, was a really cool set because of the, um, I, I, I I don't know if this is true, but I, I believe that the, the supply was lower for 84 Dunross. And so it made it a, a little bit, um, seemed to be a, a little bit more of a premium set. Um, of course, it included the, the Mattingly rookie. Um, I love the, uh, the 1980 top set I always really liked. Um, I, I liked uh, all three sets from 87. The 87 Fleer, 87 Tops, and 87 uh, Donruss. And uh, 86 Don Russ. Those are, I, I wrote down a couple of the sets that I like the best, but those those are the ones that stand out for me. Um, how about you, Mike? Which which sets do you like the best from the 80s? I really actually got started with the hobby because of 89 Tops. So I've always just loved that 89 Tops simple design. I've always liked it. Uh, brings back a ton of great memories. So 89s really uh, when I got started, I got a. Uh, couple packs of cards for my birthday had a birthday party some kid gave me a few packs and i remember opening with my dad and going through the cards he's telling me about the players and that's really what uh, kind of got things going and uh but then i remember like the 89 upper deck and even at that time uh there was so much overflow of all the old stuff i remember immediately opening up like 88 tops 87 tops uh some 86 tops, but not crazy amounts. Uh, then the 89 Donruss, of course, and 89 Fleer, 88 Fleer, just all that sport flicks. I used to buy the sport <laughs> flicks. They don't seem to have uh, maintained a ton of value. I think I bought a Mike Schmidt in a PSA 10 just for the heck of it, like an 88 sport <laughs> flicks. It was like nice. eight bucks or something. But uh, all that stuff was awesome. And, uh, just a lot of fun. I think 88 Tops was actually the first set I tried to put together myself. I had most of them, and then you probably took like a 20-year break before I finished it. Yeah, I remember um, I, I, I I put together 89 Don Ross, and I remember when uh, 1990 Leaf came out, that putting th- that set together was a lot of fun. That was another real, like back back then, it was like every card was like, 50 even the common cards were like 50 cents to be able to put together like i remember i put it in a nice every single card in in, in um in a page and a binder um so that was a lot of fun putting together the 1990 leaf set and i did the same thing uh with 1991 stadium club the next year i really loved stadium club when that came out um but unfortunately you know i kind of you know after that i sort of stopped putting sets together um, I don't know if you you continue doing. I, I I I can't even tell you the last time I tried to even attempt to put a set together. Ninety. You know, so it's been more about. What's that? No, I was just gonna say ninety leaf was an unbelievably amazing set. I still go back on it. Yeah. And, uh, I opened a pack of it in that rookie card explosion box uh, the other oh, day, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, dude, this set's awesome. It's like simplistic, but it's awesome. But I remember that being like the big <laughs> set back then. Like the Frank Thomas and whatever, that was going to be the set that was going to be worth, you know, 10 grand in 
2018. Yeah, sure. And I mean, right. I'm assuming it's probably worth like 15 bucks now. I, don't even know. <laughs> I mean, get a high grade Thomas, I guess it's all right. But, but no, yeah, set collecting, I just, I can't do it anymore. I really, I put together like the Phillies team sets year by year in the binders. But as far as a set, I just, I don't really care anymore about making sets. That's the one thing I know I've determined in a hobby. I'm definitely just not a set collector. I like yeah. base, I like base cards. I think base cards are cool, like even right. cheap regular tops. But I'll pick out like I don't know. I open a box and I'll go through them. Usually pull out between nine and twenty seven and toss them mm-hmm. in a couple pages, and then I'll put like a few pages together from the different products that I break during the course of the year and just throw them in a binder. And at some point, you flip through them and go. Oh wow, these cards are actually pretty damn nice. You probably yeah. don't appreciate yeah. them as much as I should. And then other times I'm like, "How'd this player get in here? This guy stinks." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think I, in terms of building sets, like I, I think that tops kind of that is one thing that they kind of shot their foot um, a little bit on. Um, you know, you know, what do they have? Like thirty, thirty-five products out every year now. Um, and with, with this, because there's so much variety, um, it's like, it's impossible to even focus on one, one product. You know, there's just so much out there that, you know, the, between low end, um, you know, middle tier, and then there's so much high end where like every single card is, is a hit. And, um, I, I think that's part of the problem is just so many sets out there that it's like hard to focus on building a set. When you're like, oh, uh, you know, Tops Series 1 is out. And then before you know it, like Bowman's out. Bowman Chrome is out. And you're like, well, do I want to continue to build a top set when I could, you know, get the latest release that's out there? And I I think that's sort of killed the idea of building sets nowadays. Yeah, I think the hardcore set collectors are always going to be hardcore set collectors and build their sets. But I think if you were just kind of like a general person that if the only release was Tops... I'd probably yeah. build the set, but the yep. fact that you, as you said, tops came out and since tops came out, you already had heritage come out and now opening day is out. And I'm pretty sure tops inception came out like two days ago and gypsy queen comes out next week. So before right. opening day, you have five sets out and then <laughs> I think Bowman's a few weeks later and then it, it might relax her a little bit, but at some point there's an explosion of products in June where you have the tops finest, the tops Chrome, the, Bowman Chrome, the 800 other things, like you can't right. keep track of it. It, it really, and, and then there's so many products, I don't know, in my opinion, that are just way too similar, like Topps Archives and Topps Heritage, for example. It just, they just feel to me like you could, you could almost consolidate that into like one product. I, I don't know. It, it, they're just, and then there's so many of these high end products where it's like, you know, every every card is a hit, and it gets to a point where it's like, um, are, you know, relics are are they do they even have any value? Because there's relics and even autographs. I mean, out, like we all know, the, you know, the players out there that you know they sign so many autographs that it's like, okay, I've got I've got his I got I've got his auto in Bowman, I've got his auto in Archives, I got his auto in Triple Threads, and. Um, I don't know. It's just, it seems like sometimes it's just, it's just overkill. <laughs> they've, but, they've definitely gone over the top with certain things. It's just, yeah. Um, especially that crazy high end stuff that you talk about. Like they'll release a product one year and they're like, ah, it didn't quite sell enough. So that's done. We're not going right. to do that anymore. <laughs> but yep. 
I mean, there's good things and bad things about having a bunch of different products, especially you'll have different things in different products and different players. Yep. Uh, and obviously certain players, you'll have certain guys who sign a ton as a rookie. And then after that, they don't really sign as much. They might only sign in certain products. So it's the hobby has certainly changed. I think if you went back 25, 30 years, you would never have thought, wait, they're making like 40 different products and right. you would never even anticipate autographs and relics and all that. And I, another thing that's kind of taken a hit is even the one of ones. Like it's like, there's certain one of ones that I think will maintain a lot of collectability. I think the Topps yep. Chrome Superfractor is a sought yeah. after card. People like Definitely. to do that rainbow, but like the one of one at a Topps Fire, like no one really cares. The one of one out of this <laughs> and that. Right. I mean, you're you're at the point where you have common one of ones. You can probably buy for like twenty bucks on eBay. Right. So it's it's not like it was even five years ago, where it's like, oh my gosh, it's the one of one. Even though yeah. it's some mediocre shortstop, like. It, still be like a $200 card those days yeah, I, I think have come and gone because it's just so much i i think one of the like you posted um um on youtube uh, you know give give us some of your questions i think somebody asked if um if i'd rather get a a base rookie card or a relic um and while it is it's cool to, to hit a relic you know um that I, I, in the it, long, long run, I, I, I feel like I'd rather have a nice rookie card than a relic because it's just like with the relic cards, they just I, I, there's just so many of them, and I, I don't know, and I, I, I just I guess I'd rather have the you know the the base card with the rookie logo in the corner, um, you know, so it, it's just funny because you you would think that you would much rather to get get a hit like an autograph or, or a relic. Um, in a lot of cases, I'd rather just get a simple base rookie card, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense. But I think there's a lot yeah. of people that are going to that mindset, though. I mean, you're going to have people who are hit chasers, and that's still a thing for sure. But I think there's a lot of people kind of going back to their roots a little bit and getting more yeah. into the rookie cards um, and yep. wanting to collect them. And then, of course, with grading, you can enhance the value. And, of course, you have parallels and different things like that as well. But I just I like I'm more with you because mm. I'm personally not really into relics. There's a few yeah. products here and there that I'm like, oh, that's a cool looking card. But yep. most of the time, I'm just I don't know. I'm over that. Like when they first start doing it, when Upper Deck had it in the early 2000s, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's a piece of his bat. But at this point, I'm like, sure. I'm kind of like, no, just save the bat. Go put the bat in the Hall of Fame. I'll chop it up and put it on baseball cards. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's. The, the relic thing has been a little overkill, but let's, uh, you mentioned some of those questions and we did, uh, get some questions in on YouTube and, uh, Facebook as well. So let's tackle a few of them. We'll, uh, give our thoughts on, on a few of the questions from some of the listeners out there. All right. So what do we got here? We got Chris asking, uh, he, he made a comment and asked a question. He said, the hobby has been booming. Do you think Tops needs to be careful with the amount of product they release? Uh, how much damage will a few years of lackluster rookies in many releases do? So we kind of gave our thoughts on that yeah. a little bit with the amount of uh, stuff released. And I think we both kind of agreed that it's probably – they probably shouldn't expand anymore. You can make an argument that it's already a little bit – too many, but at the same time, you need to see their perspective that they do need to produce a certain amount of product to turn a profit because it's not just the cost of producing the cards. I think 
the majority of the cost for tops. Mm-hmm. From my opinion, this is without not without, you know, knowing facts, but I'm sure the amount of money they have to pay for these exclusive deals and the amount of money they have to pay athletes to sign stuff and all that, I'm sure is uh is tremendous. So you know right. I, I think producing the cardboard cards is the least of their worries to turn a profit. <laughs> but what are, what yeah, are your thoughts it, on yeah, the we, uh on the rookie question? Yeah, I know. I it's for me, it's it, it's hard to um, imagine all of those rookie cards, you know, continuing to have value. I think you're already seeing that with Chris Bryant. Um, he was one of the first guys that I, you know, at least that I was aware of that just had so many rookie cards. So, you know, they, and then and then on top of that, he had he had um, two Bowman Chrome autos. So usually, you just have one Bowman Chrome auto, but he had Bowman Chrome autos that were like considered to be his first Bowman Chrome autos. And then there was just rookies upon rookies upon rookies. Um, you know, I guess what, you know, what I've seen at least is that, uh, people tend to gravitate to, uh, certain products, um, such as, you know, the base tops card, the, you know, the Bowman Chrome Auto, you um, maybe the, uh, the, the art, maybe the archives card or the, um, you know, so that there are certain, certain rookies that'll survive i think but um there's gonna be a lot of rookie cards that are you know created uh just to you know uh hammer out those 30 to 35 products um that just get lost in the shuffle i mean think about last year uh, 2018 um with um you know guys like acuna and shohei otani especially i mean how many rookies just just in tops alone you know because you had them in Top Series One, you had them in Series Two, you had them in uh, Update, and then in Update you'd have um, they'd be like seven or eight different OTs just within Update, you know, because there'd be like there'd be the the base card, then there'd be like the um, Shohei Otani throwing and Shohei Shohei Otani hitting, and uh, you know Future Stars card. It's it's um, you know it gets to a point where you're like you don't even know what to collect anymore, so. I, I don't think it's going to help the, the value of those, but but there will be one or two cards that eventually, over time, people will gravitate. Yeah, and I think it depends on what the players do. If players don't produce, people aren't going to generally have interest. Uh, so sure. w- we'll see what happens and how players develop. This year, I mean, there's not really any hot rookies in the product so far. That will change as the year goes on. Uh, Eloy yeah. Jimenez, now that he's going to be with the White Sox, I'm sure he'll be on being cards, they'll probably start coming out maybe around June or so and pack pulled uh, releases. And then Vlad Guerrero Jr., when he gets in there, those will probably be the two hottest guys I would think off the top of my head. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how some of the guys from last year do. A few of them mm-hmm. will probably have big years and their cards will continue to keep pace and maybe rise. And some of the guys might fall off and their cards will take a hit. But there's a, uh, it's kind of, it's a lot of what have you done for me lately with rookie cards for sure. Yep. All right. We got another question from uh, coach and sons. He wants to know if either of us know why there are no Giancarlo Stanton Yankees cards, uh, auto cards. He hasn't been in a release. I guess. I don't know for sure because I haven't really paid attention. I haven't seen one. And I would Mm -hmm. say simply, it's probably because Giancarlo Stanton's, Got that uh, money coming in from that Marlins contract, and he's probably just not that interested <laughs> in signing. 
I'd imagine that Tops has approached them, maybe not for every sure. product, but high end products. And some players just don't want to sign, and they just they don't sign. They're just not in products. Yeah, I, I, my my guess is that the the simple answer is probably the the correct answer, which is that he just didn't didn't want to sign it. Uh, uh, you know, he probably didn't want to bu- sign a bunch of uh, autographs on cards. Uh, he's already making an insane amount of money, and um, so I, I I don't know. I I, I I I now that now that you mentioned, it, I don't think I have seen uh, his autograph um, with him as a Yankee. Um, but I do have some of his stuff. Like I I, I pulled an autograph. Um, of, I have I have the Bowman Chrome auto um, when he was with the Marlins, and then. Um, I forget if it was like triple threads or tribute. I hit that as part of like the best of baseball um, out of 10. Uh, but those were both with uh, with him with the Marlins. Yeah, I just don't think he's been in anything recently. And it just depends. Right. Like Mike Trout's got an exclusive deal with Top, so he's going to be there for a few years doing them. But, I mean, he's only signing probably 25 cards in each product. You don't have Mike Trout as a wide autograph release. That's why they kind of hammer those right. rookie guys early on. And you'll see these guys signing thousands of autographs in every product because at the sure. time, you know, these guys, they're just making it to the majors. They haven't earned a ton of money and they go, oh, yeah, I'll sign that. That sounds like easy money. And then next thing you know, they're locked in a room for two weeks signing cards all day. They're probably like, oh, I'm never doing this again. All right. We got Brandon S. He's uh, saying when trying to figure out what to collect first uh player specific rookie cards autos graded cards vintage junk wax new how would you go about deciding which direction to go wow um yeah you know i'm i'm probably the worst person to ask that question to because i'm all over the place i i my my strategy is is by buy what you like um you know buy a little i i try to buy a little bit of everything, um, you know. Don't. It's funny because a lot of people will tell you like try to find a niche. I I actually don't recommend that. I I really enjoy collecting a little bit of everything. Um, there, there was like I uh, a couple one of the part of the reasons that I got back into collecting is I bought in uh, an eighty eight nineteen uh eighteen eighty eight old judge card, and it's one of the coolest cards that I've. Ever ever purchased uh, it was about a hundred dollars and uh, it's just this old school picture of you know a guy um you know when f- photography was brand new uh such an awesome card but then it, you know i i also love to collect the you know the more recent stuff um but uh you know collect collect a, i recommend collecting a little bit of everything find what you you know what you really enjoy and then and then go from there but um don't let Limit yourself to being like, I'm only going to collect this type of card. Maybe, in, you know, uh, in the beginning, you know, try out a little bit of everything and then and then find out what you, what you really like and then, and then, you know, and then go from there. Yeah, what, do you, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I agree. You have to do what you like. You have to do what makes you happy. I don't think you should chase stuff just because of value. I also don't think you should ignore uh, value. I think the thing I tell people a lot. I'm like, hey, if I decide to buy a card, a lot of the times, one of the things I think of among other things is if I decide to resell this, what can I get out of it? Can I get close to the money back? And if the answer is yes, then it's a no-brainer. Why not? You know, If I'm lucky and I would decide to resell it and make money, that's great. If I take a very small hit, 
it's not that big of a deal. So I think value when you're putting real money into stuff is important. It's really important yeah. to consider, but you got to buy and collect what you like. And I think after a while, you will gravitate towards certain things. I know over the years, I've gravitated away from set collecting. I've gravitated away from relic cards. I am definitely into autographs. I like autographs a lot. I like the pack pulled stuff, and I actually like the IP stuff, the PSA DNA type of stuff as well. Um, but I like specific sets, kind of. Uh, I'm into rookies, and I'm into players and teams. So, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to do a little bit of everything. I agree with you yep. about doing everything. I think if you're a hardcore baseball fan, and if you're a hardcore baseball card fan, then I don't see how you don't dabble at least a little bit in everything. Um, I think yeah. I I actually personally get a little annoyed when people – go over the top one way or the other like you got to go with the new stuff this is what or you have to just go with the old stuff like to me you need mm-hmm. to have a nice balance of respecting the past but just as important is respecting how good the current players are because there is a ridiculously unbelievably group of talented baseball players out there right now that some mm-hmm. of them have a chance to go down as the best of all time so i think you got to find that balance somehow some way uh, one way that I've done it with getting more into the vintage stuff is to kind of, as a Phillies fan and a Phillies collector, I basically decided I'm going to try and get like one example of all the different sets, different releases, different styles of cards, pre-war, all that stuff. And that's the way I've kind of been able to delve a little bit into it. And then I want to get some of the Hall of Famers in the other cards as well, but I don't need to get everyone. And I don't even need to get just Hall of Famers. I can get the really good players that made an impact on the game. So mm-hmm. I think you'll find your way uh, the more you collect. Collecting is just kind of like everything else in life. The more experience you get with it, the more you'll kind of find yourself. Right. Just try Just try to limit the amount of packs you bust. Yeah, break, 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 break some packs for fun, of course, but you don't want to right. go over the top with it. If right. you go over the top with it, and you're just that's how you'll find yourself kind of just chasing hits or chasing value, and you're right. just going to get into that quicksand, and it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough yeah. task to get out of it. Right, just the, yeah, just don't spend your 100 percent budget on just ripping packs. You know, I that's just my personal advice, but you can still do it if you want. But I, I would just. Um, you know, it's still fun to do, but, uh, you know, like Mike said, it's, um, there's something that I really enjoy about having a really nice card. And I know it may not as ex- be as exciting, you know, short term to buy a really nice card, like spend, you know, your entire budget on one card. But in the long run, um, you know, the cards that I've enjoyed most in my collection are the ones that I spent a little extra on. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, and then the cards that I, you know, busted as part of packs are sitting at the bottom of shoe boxes that I haven't looked at in years. So, yeah, there's definitely a is a complexity to breaking packs. You have the the thrill and the gamble aspect and all that. And if you do hit something big, it certainly creates a a memory, a long lasting memory. But you have to yep. be selective with what products you buy, and that goes with all aspects of breaking, even group breaking. I still participate in some group breaks. Uh, from time to time, if there's a product that I'm not interested in breaking, but I'm like, ah, I'll take a shot on the Phillies. Maybe I get something good. If not, I get some base. You know, as long as it's not that expensive, I'll, I'll do stuff like that. 
Um, but some people kind of take that too far too. And they're like scouting out which teams are the best and they're spending. And next thing you know, you're spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and don't have a whole <laughs> lot to show for it. All right. We have a question from Scott M asking about if you want to get a card crossed over from Beckett to PSA, will PSA take the card out of the Beckett case? They will. You can do that. Some people don't like to do that because they feel like there's a bias. Some people like to crack it out themselves and resend it in. There's, of course, a risk with that of damaging the card. So you can get that done if uh, if you so desire. I personally have never I've never done that. Yeah, I, I mean, from, from personal experience, like I, I know that you can submit them still in the Beckett holder. But um, it's, yeah, it, it really, I, I think a lot of times they look at the subgrades. I think there is a bias. Um, you know, I, I, I do think they look at those subgrades. If, they, if, if a lot of the subgrades are nine fives or higher, you're probably going to be able to cross it over successfully. But if you have like, a, you know, a nine five with like two nine fives and, and two nines of subs, they're probably not going to cross over. Um, and you might be better off actually cracking it out. Um, but it's a, a gamble either way. Um, and, you know, I, I've had experiences where I've submitted it and, um, and they can't, you know, the PSA sent them right back to me in the, in the, in the Beckett holder. So, um, but, you know, the nice thing is that they'll leave it in the Beckett holder. So you don't have to worry about, you know, cracking it out and resubmitting it. But so there's a, I can see both, both arguments, but that's sort of my recommendation there. I don't know if you have uh, time for this, but we have a question asking for you to list the top 10 Yankees of all time. Not your favorite, but who do you <laughs> uh, think are the best? I mean, there's, that's a deep list to uh, go through. Well, well, all right. So, you know, so you have, you have Ruth, Garrick, Mantle, DiMaggio. Like, the, obviously, you got those guys. You got Barra. You got Jeter. You got Moe. You got Whitey Ford, right? So that's what, how many is that? You're up to uh, eight, I believe. Eight, eight. So I feel like those are the obvious guys, right? Um, then you start to get into like the less, ob- like that, that's where you kind of, like that's where your list kind of, that's where you tier one ends. Or maybe, you know, maybe Ruth, Gehrig, Mantle, DiMaggio might be tier one, maybe. Uh, that may be tier one, and then you got tier two, but, um, Tier three is where it gets a little bit more difficult, I think. Um, so, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess you, you got to put Bill Dickey in there. Um, just main, mainly because, you know, he was uh, 11, uh, I think he had 11 years, batted 300. Um, and, um, you know, it was a really great catcher for, for the Yankees. Um, then you're like, there's so many other guys. I mean, you could, you could go Reggie, uh, you can go A-Rod. Um, you can go Mattingly, uh, Pettit, Posada. Um, I don't know. I mean, I <laughs> Brian Taylor doesn't make the cut. Right, <laughs> Brian Taylor. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, it, you you might slap me for this for saying this, Mike, but I might go with A Rod. Um, I mean, it. You know, he he won uh, two MVPs. With the, it, it's so it's so hard with it with him because you know because of all the steroid stuff, but. You know, two MVP seasons. I mean, he, he basically carried the Yankees to the 2009 World Series championship. He basically carried them on his back for that. And then Matsui kind of finished it off. But. Yeah, I'm well aware of the way that 09 uh, World Series ended. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
<laughs> Sorry, I, I forgot for Matt, a second. Matsui was just unstoppable. That I think he had like yeah, 570 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, that um, especially that uh, was that game six. Um, maybe game five. I don't. I, don't I think game six, he had like a three-run homer or something. I was like, oh, this yeah, is, this yeah. is just about done. Right. I, I, you know what's funny about that is uh, I remember he, he signed with the Tampa Bay Rays in the off season, um, and I remember he came back to Yankee Stadium, and I I think he hit a home run against the Yankees. It was the the first time I, I I'd ever seen it. Like, I was at Yankee Stadium when he hit that home run, and I I'd never seen the stadium cheer for like yet the other team hitting a home run. It was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but uh, Matsui deserved it. I mean, he was unbelievable in that series. Um, so uh, but I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I'll probably go. I guess I'll go. A Rod is the yeah the you know the tenth greatest. Yeah, I mean A Rod. You know, a lot of people. Um, He's got one of the greatest minds I've ever seen. Um, like I love watching him do analysis. I know there's a lot of um, love hate with him, but I mean he was one of the greats. Uh, you know, the, the fact that he was able to just move over to third base, and be, you know, basically a Gold Glove third base, and still um, have a couple win a couple MVPs with the Yankees is pretty impressive. So I think it's a shame he got caught up in all the controversy stuff because again. He's his numbers were unbelievable. He's a great player, and I almost feel like he's—I don't know—he hasn't gotten really the attention he deserves. I don't think he gets the level of hate yeah. that some of the other steroid guys um, yep. get, but he—he he doesn't really get the attention that maybe he deserves. So we'll see what happens in time. Uh, but he yeah. certainly had a great career, both in Seattle and with the Yankees, and that brief uh, stop in Texas. Uh, Bowman 1951 says, how well do you think 2019 Series 2 will do uh, with the potential of players like Eloy Jimenez, Vlad Jr., etc. being in the release? And I think it definitely depends on what is in that checklist. It's going to depend. Uh, I think Eloy Jimenez will be a lock. I I believe he's going to be on the opening day roster because he just signed the eight-year extension. So he should be in it, and that'll be a card to chase. Guerrero, it depends with the oblique, how long he's held out. I mean, he yep. may not make the cut. I I wouldn't bet on him being in Series 2. I think there's a very good chance, much like Juan Soto, uh, that he gets held out to update. So Jimenez may be in Series 2. Uh, Guerrero might wait till update. I mean, he'll be in a product or two before that. Um, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I don't think the level of rookies – so two years ago, I was like – the level of rookies is ridiculous with Judge Mania and Ben Attendi and yet Bregman and a few other big name guys. And I remember last year thinking that there's no way it can be as hyped up. And then you had the Otani Mania, which it was the fact that he's a great talent, of course, but the fact that he was doing two different things was unique, which drew a lot of attention. And then the Japanese market sent it over the top. And then you had, you know, a whole crew of rookies. I mean, last year's rookie class is underrated, in my opinion. I don't think people even actually grasp how great it could be with Torres and uh, even Hoskins, who almost gets forgotten as that part of that rookie class. Raphael Devers and Soto, of course, and Acuna. So it, it depends on who's going to be in there. I, I wouldn't expect a booming amount of rookies, though, in Series 2. Yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, that's why updates usually the way to go, because you know, even if you know, even if Eloy Jimenez, like you mentioned, is in series two, he's going to be an update as well. So, 
Um, that's the beauty of update is you get you get the the guys that were in series two and and you get the guys that were only in update. So, um, but yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's you really need to kind of see who makes the checklist. Um, but you know, I can see Vlad. You know, Vlad is in there. That's going to be huge when it comes out. Especially people going to want to get their hands on that. Um, and then you might have, uh, you know, Fernando Tatis Jr. Possibly, uh, pro- probably not, but it, it, there's a chance that he might make it into series two. And, you know, then there's, you know, guys like, uh, Nick Senzel and, you know, Bo Bichette. Um, those are all guys that could make it, but again, it really depends on, you know, when they get called up and, um, but I, I, I do think that people are going to go crazy when, when Vlad, um, has his first card people are going to be buying up that product like crazy, at least initially. I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a guy who's never stepped in the major league batter's box get so much <laughs> hype. There have been a lot of really hyped prospects over the years. Some have made it and some haven't. But the level of yeah. hype and the level of investment in his cards, and when he's out selling his dad, who's a freaking Hall of Famer, like, 20 to 1. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's just, yeah. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I know all the, the grades that the, that the scouts have given him are all, a lot of them have been record setting and he's obviously performed in the minors, but holy Lord, is there a lot of hype for this kid? Just another example of uh, baseball collectors being completely irrational. It's insane. And I mean, hey, if he goes down as one of the top three greatest players of all time, I guess those investments will pay off. But if he's only one of the 25 best players of all time, they might not. So we'll see. The the hype's insane. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are Vlad Jr. rookie cards that sell for more than Babe Ruth, 33 Gaudi Babe Ruth cards, which is is just, you know. It doesn't make sense. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. All right. But if you brought somebody that didn't know anything about the hobby into this, you'd be like, what that? Like, why? I don't get it. Yep. A lot of people be like, who's Vladimir Gerd? Didn't he stop playing like 20 years ago? Right. <laughs> All right. We got some more questions. We'll try and get through them as quickly as we can. This uh, <laughs> podcast is going over the hour mark as I kind of anticipated it going, but I appreciate Joe, aka Silver Jackify, joining me here on Hobby Talk with Mike O. If you guys are listening on SoundCloud, iTunes, or YouTube, feel free to post a comment below. Let me know what you think. Hit the like button, share it. Uh, Certainly would appreciate it. And check out uh, Silver Jackify over on YouTube. All you have to do is go to YouTube, type in Silver Jackify, and a whole bunch of videos with a whole lot of views will pop up, and I'm sure you'll you'll enjoy them. So the next question is coming from the Card Dreamer. He says, is grading vintage or modern cards better for long-term investment? So do you have a specific thought on that? Because it can be probably more complex than a lot of people would think. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess it, it really, again, it really comes down to, uh, that's, I mean, it's a very generic question, but, you know, like I'll say it again, is that, you know, condition is everything. So um, if you're going to, whether it be getting cards graded, um, the um, you know, especially with vintage cards, if, if it turns out to be a high-grade card, I mean, it could seriously increase the value of your card, um, short-term and long-term. Um, you know, I, I think over the long-term, uh, again, 
you know, some of these low grade cards are not going to be are not going to hold up as much value, I don't think. But it, you know, these special cards that are in a, you know, a PSA 10 or vintage cards that are high grade cards um, are always going to have value. And, and you know, having them um, in the, the in the holder, um, you know, increases reliability if you're selling the cards. So, um, you know, I, I'm I, I'm a big fan of you know getting cards graded, but you want to make sure you're getting the right cards graded. So. Um, what I would recommend is if you are going to get cards graded, um, you know, analyze the card yourself. What, what do you think the grade is, is going to be? And then look up that card, see how much that card, you know, how much, like, okay, so I, I think this card is a PSA six. Um, how much does that card go for? Um, and then see if it's worth it for you to, you know, if you consider the fees associated with, Submitting it, um, it sometimes can be pretty expensive. Is it worth it for you to then go ahead and get it graded based on um, you know, the value of the card? There is a lot of expense involved in grading. So there's times where it makes more sense to just go out and buy the graded card you're interested in. Um, right. I do think the easy answer is, oh, of course, vintage. And I think vintage is certainly the safer way to go for graded cards. It's going to hold value and probably slowly increase. Um, high grade vintage is probably going to continue to be very high. I think the majority of people are priced out of high grade vintage of the superstars. Uh, I do think there's room for growth in the lower graded vintage stuff. In terms of modern stuff, anything under a nine. You can, for the most part, forget. There's a few exceptions, few and far between. The 93 SP Jeter, which is a notoriously well-known difficult card to grade. That card's so expensive that you may have to settle for a lower graded card. A 9 can be okay to pick up for your collection if you just want to collect the card slabbed. But with modern stuff, if you're doing it for an investment purpose, it's got to be a 10. And you got to make sure it's the right card, the right player, the right release. Um if you're looking to spend money, say, on a Ronald Acuna Jr., and you're looking for just a good rookie card, I think that Series 2 card is great card. It's the uh, short print, super short print, whatever you want to call it. Like That's a card that's really tough to get in a 10. That, that price has blown up a lot also in the last uh, couple months. So it was like a $150 card. It's probably like 300 now, but it, it has $500 written $500 card written all over it for the future, pending him continuing to uh, be what we think he could be. So I do think the safe investment is vintage, but I, I wouldn't sleep on modern. I mean, we got to see the way players and teams and everything develops in the next 20 years. Um, eventually, like, I feel like there'll be less people around who ever saw certain Hall of Famers in the 50s play. But you're still going to have the legend being passed along. Like, you look at, like, super old school tobacco stuff. Most of those players, like, no one saw any of those guys play, but they're very <laughs> rare. So, it's it's weird. It's going to be weird to see how things um, develop uh, going forward. But it's certainly something to think about. All right, Dustin Bellinger uh, wants to know some unique items in your collection that uh, collectors may not be familiar with. Anything uh, jump out at you, Joe? You know, I'm not. Uh, I was thinking about that because I, I saw his comment on that, <laughs> and uh, you know, 
I think, you know, I'm, I'm more about, um, I've always been a baseball card guy. I mean, I have a couple of, you know, I have a Mariano Rivera signed bat. I have a Mickey Mantle auto, um, that I got as a kid. And, um, my dad, you know, went and met Joe DiMaggio, um, and had an index card, uh, filled out, um, signed to, to myself and my brother. Um, so I have some kind of, you know, cool things. I have a, you know, Phil Rizzuto, uh, auto, um, but, uh, I've always been, you know, a focus very much on the, you know, baseball cards. And, you know, uh, like I said, um, my, my whole thing is, you know, owning a little bit of everything, you know, like owning a piece of history from the beginning of baseball cards to, to, to today. And, um, you guys, I think have seen, <laughs> I haven't made any, uh, you know, I've made many videos of my, of my top baseball cards. So I, I, I'm sure, um, if you guys have checked out my channel, you know exactly, uh, some of those cards that I'm talking about. Some of them are definitely top baseball card, top, top flight baseball cards. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. There's <laughs> not much, uh, junk in the top of your list. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, unique items. I mean, I have stuff here and there, but nothing, nothing too crazy. I do have some game used, uh, stuff. I was into the game used jerseys a lot at one point. So I actually have a Russell Brannion Phillies, uh, game used jersey. Russell Brannion had nine at bats with the Phillies and he homered twice. So I feel like there's a good chance he homered while wearing that jersey. <laughs> but yeah, I used to pick up a lot of stuff like that at, uh, Phillies charity events, but, as that stuff, even the market for that stuff has risen, really, it's like it's tough to buy that stuff at a reasonable price now. Even like common nobody players, they auction all that stuff off. Um, I used to actually have some old ticket stubs. My dad gave me some ticket stubs that he got from someone, old Yankees, like World Series ticket stubs. And we decided to sell them probably like 15 years ago. And we got, I don't remember exactly what it was, but we got good money for them. But now I'm like, Oh man, I probably could have gotten them graded and that whole market's changed too. So there's a lot of unique stuff out there. Uh, we got a few more to get to. We got JVP baseball. Would you rather pull a rookie card of a decent player like Corey Seager or Anthony Rendon or pull a relic card of them? Yep. I, I, I think we, uh, I think we answered that question earlier, but yeah, definitely for me, a, a rookie card. You know, I, I, that's just my, I, I've never been really into the, uh, into the relics, so I probably would just prefer to just get a, a base rookie card. Yeah, uh, I'll put it this way: if I did that, I would probably I'd be more likely to keep the rookie card. If I hit the relic, I would probably turn around and just sell it and put that money yep. into the collection. That's just the way I go. Uh, next one's from some guy, Silver Jackify. Why is <laughs> Silver Jackify so awesome? <laughs> I don't know. I just uh, you know. Thank you, Silver Jackify, first of all, for saying that. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just I wake up every day and I'm just awesome. So, like, hey, know, if I, you're born with awesome, you're born with awesome. You know, <laughs> that's just the way that's just the way it goes for some people. <laughs> Marky Michaels asks, besides Acuna, Soto, Albies, and Duhar, who I didn't mention before, Torres, and even Robles, uh, is there any of the 18 rookies that will surprise uh, this year? Was thinking maybe Richard Urena or Tyler Wade could have a good year. Any uh, under the radar guys that you're uh, thinking about from 18? Um, well, you know, uh, I think Ahmed Rosario was in uh, 2018. I, I, I could see he was a highly touted prospect, and I, you know, I, I know that toward later in the year, I feel like he was um, 
he was doing pretty well. I think he was hitting like 300, like late in the year. Um, you know, I, I know, uh, this, that, that guy, Fran Mill Reyes, um, only because, you know, I play a lot of fantasy baseball and I, I had him on my team and he was mashing for a while, um, like late in the season last year. So he might be somebody to keep an eye on. Um, another guy that, you know, uh, speaking of fantasy baseball, um, and I know he wasn't in 2018, but, um, that guy, uh, Raul Mondesi, who's now, um, Aldo, Aldoberto Mondesi, I believe his, his name is. Um, he, in 54 games last year, um, I think he had like 11 home runs and 27 stolen bases. And you can imagine if you were to do that over a full season, that's, you know, 30 to 35 home runs and 80 to 90 stolen bases. Um, so he, I know that, um, just because I, I do fantasy and those are some of the things that like I noticed he, he was getting taken in like the fourth round. And I was like, who is, like, who is this guy? And, um, and I looked into his numbers. And I'm like, wow, I, I can understand why people are kind of excited about this kid. And I, I'm sure, you know, he plays for Kansas City. A lot of people may not have heard about heard about him, uh, but he's just somebody to keep an eye on. Um, and I'm sure you can get very cheap right now. Yeah, 18. That I'm telling you, 18 is so deep. Um, just even in his comment, he didn't mention Otani, who will come back as a DH at some sure. point this yeah. year. We'll see what he does. Uh, Reese Hoskins, we'll see how he uh, – performs this year with some more all-star caliber players in the lineup. Raphael Devers, who's still only 21 years old. I feel like he hasn't gotten a whole lot of respect in the hobby. His stuff's actually come down quite a bit. I still think he can mesh. And uh, Rosario's the guy I was going to mention. I think he's yeah. just loaded with talent. And I mean, his stuff's probably, I mean, I'm not saying it's dirt cheap, but it's probably not overly expensive. So if you want to take a little gamble, I, I think they're all, you know, he's a guy you could certainly look at. All right. So what else we got here? Favorite set from the nineties. You have a favorite set from the nineties quick. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think I might've mentioned a couple of them, you know, uh, 90 lease. Uh, uh I, I really like 1990 tops for some reason. I've always liked that. So I always like that too. For some reason, I think it's just cause I was collecting so much of it, but like that color around yeah. the borders, this is something cool about it. Yeah. I, I always loved that Frank Thomas card. Um, you know, would love to get the no name on front, but I, Probably never get that card. Um, and I, you know, 92 Bowman. You got to love 92 Bowman. I mean, there's some of the, the you rookies know, are brutal, even, even but the, it's still an awesome yeah. set. <laughs> like that Rivera rookie is just so awesome. I love that Rivera rookie. He, he, you know, he looks like he's still in Panama and he's like, you know, he's got those cargo shorts on. And um, I just like, you know, it's, you know, I think there's a Manny Ramirez card from that set and, you know, the Mike Piazza card. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the SP, uh, the 93 SP with Jeter, the 94 SP with A-Rod. Um, yeah, I think, uh, what was it? Uh, nine, was it the first Bowman Chrome set, I think, was in the 90s? Uh, Bowman Chrome's first year was 97. Yeah, that was the year with uh, Beltre and Halliday. Uh, my yeah. favorite is still, I think, 93 Finest. I just, I love that design. That's still my favorite year of Finest. Finest has yeah. had some great sets, and they've had some kind of dud sets. Uh, the follow-up on 93 Finest and 94 Finest with the green borders didn't quite live up to the 93 release, but it's an awesome set. But, hey, there's a lot of awesome baseball cards in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, sure. 2010s, <laughs> and hopefully uh, long into the future. Uh, Ray from Philly wants to know what Joe's favorite 80s set is. So I'm sure you've mentioned the 80s sets, but let's satisfy yep. Ray with what your favorite is. 
favorite. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll say it again. It's uh, <laughs> it's eighty nine Dunruss. It's just um, I just love that set. There's so many great rookies in it, um, and it's you know it, it's very nostalgic for me because I bought. There was one point point where I bought an, an entire case of eighty nine Dunruss cards, and I just still remember just ripping through all those packs and. Um, it's really more of a nostalgic thing. I don't necessarily think that it's the greatest design ever, but it's got a lot of really nice rookie cards in it, and it just brings up back a lot of memories for me. How many Griffies did you pull out of a case? Oh my goodness! I, you know what? Um, what I you know what I noticed is that because uh, it's weird, right? You'll get boxes with none, and then you'll get a yeah, box with like four or five of them. Right, but you know there there are definitely cards that that I that that have to be double printed. Like I have. I must have like a hundred Kurt Schilling rookie cards. Like there's so many Kurt Schillings. Um, there's certain cards that I have so many, uh, copies of that. And Griffey doesn't pop up as much. Um, it, 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 it's still there. And like you said, and sometimes you'll hit three of them, but there'll be a lot of times where you'll hit none in the entire box. So but you'll always hit a Kurt Schilling <laughs> or a Craig Bijan. That was another one that's double printed. Do you have uh, – I didn't really actually think about this question, but uh, I want to get to it because it was asked on your video. Uh, what do you think is the most underrated rookie card from the 80s, specifically a Topps product? Um, yeah, you know, uh, Strawberry, uh, like you mentioned him earlier, um, the 83 Topps traded Strawberry in a PSA 10. I just bought that for 100 bucks in a PSA 10. I mean, it's you know absolutely beautiful card. A huge player in New York. I'm surprised these cards don't go for more. Um, the uh, I've I've always talked about the '87 tops Tiffany Maddox. Um, you know, a, a PSA 10 of that card is like 200 bucks, whereas like Clemens '85 tops Tiffany is like goes for like five thousand dollars. And um, so I'm just surprised that the Maddox card doesn't go for more. Um, I know that this isn't uh, tops, but uh, 80, the '84 Dunruss uh, Joe Carter. Or always kind of um, when, you, when you talk about undervalued, I always think of Joe Carter uh, or the '86 Don Russ, uh, Fred McGriff. Those are two cards that um, I think are way underrated. Yeah, it'd be nice to see uh, both of them get a little more attention. I think the McGriff yeah. probably has some potential to grow um, should he eventually, and I think he will find his way into the Hall of Fame at some point. I mean, not to get into the whole Harold Baines conversation because that could be a whole big thing but i do think him getting in um opens the door quite a bit for a lot of other guys who are specifically from the 80s that are kind of deemed as legend legendary players that you know you can make an argument maybe they did or didn't have enough numbers but uh maybe their reign of dominance gets them in and i think mattingly uh dale murphy fred mcgriff these are all guys that you have to kind of consider and yeah give them a really strong, realistic chance of at some point, you know, finding their way to Cooperstown. And if they do, that'll certainly give, give them a little boost in the hobby. Yep. All right. Final questions from uh, Victor uh, over on the Facebook uh, page. I had posted something and he wanted to know if he was curious whether uh, there were any set registries uh, we're working on, if any, I don't know if you do the set registries too much. Um, I usually I, I, use them more as a checklist, honestly. I, I do not. I I, um, I I never wanted to limit myself to just PSA or just SGC or just Beckett. So 
Um, I feel like if you if you're gonna do the registries, you get you kind of like now you're kind of you're and you, you my my whole point of you know what I've been talking about is that like I like to own a little bit of everything, and I don't want to limit myself to just vintage to just PSA. So um, that's sort of my that's sort of the reason why I've never gotten into it. Yeah, I think they're fun, and I understand why people are into them. I just haven't specifically been able to get hardcore into them. I started one. Yeah. I started the basic Richie Ashburn set registry, and it's mostly just to use it as a checklist. And I'm actually at the point where all I need is the rookie card. So, I mean, I've kind of blown through that in a couple months. And I did start one at one point with the 89 tops because we were talking about earlier. I'm a big 89 tops fan. Um, so I was like, oh, let me do the Hall of Fame set from 89 Tops. And then you realize, like, holy Lord, there's a lot of Hall of Famers in 89 <laughs> Tops. And even at like $10, $15 a piece, it adds up a little bit. So I kind of started it and I'll probably eventually try and finish it. But yeah. I don't get kind of caught up in the whole ranking or anything. Um, and then his final point was, uh, does it appear to you or does it appear to us that PSA is really hard at grading cards from the 80s? And just my thought on it is I don't think that they're specifically hard on it. I just think those cards are tough to get graded. I think if you open a pack of 2019 product, it can be more difficult to get a PSA 10 than people realize. I'm not saying it's necessarily hard. I mean, 10s, you can get 10s. You just have to pay attention to it. Not every card that comes out of a pack is a 10. There's many issues that I see come up on really clean products. So if you drop that back and that quality control back a few decades, I mean, there's going to be more centering issues. It's lighter paper. Um, they, they've they been around for a long time. So there's just so many little things that can go wrong that I just think cards are can be more difficult to grade than I think people realize. So I don't think PSA is specifically tough on those cards. I just think there's a lot that can go wrong and it's more common to probably get a PSA 8 than it is mm-hmm. to get a PSA 10. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's funny because he, he, it's almost like he's asking, do I think that they're hard on it? Um, they definitely, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard to have cards, you know, that are now over 30 years old uh, that are still perfect um, or in gen mint condition. But, but it, clearly it's a fact that they're difficult on, um, you know, giving up, tens because if you look at the populations um you know a lot of times uh 15 to 20 percent of the cards submitted are psa tens and of course you would imagine that these you know when people submit cards they think that they're worthy of a psa 10 so you're getting like the best of the best submitted uh to psa and only 15 to 20 percent are coming back as tens so um definitely definitely um a fact that you know uh, it's very difficult to get a 10. What, whose fault of it, you know, it is, is uh, you know, something you could debate over, but um, it is something that you have to be very careful with because even though it's the junk wax era, it's, it's, it's not easy at all to get a, to submit a card and get a PSA 10. Yeah, I think that's the reason you see the 10s so high for those junk wax era cards. Is It's tough. I mean, you look at the 89... Donner's Ken Griffey Jr. That's a hard card to grade. The centering, the chipping is, yep. I mean, it's tough to get a 10. The statistics, the population report, 
goes to show that. It doesn't mean there's not thousands of tens, but the percentage is pretty low. I, I would assume the percentage is probably about 15% or so. So it, it's tough, but I hope uh, everyone's enjoyed this show. It's been a lengthy one, another hour and a half episode. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I've gotten feedback that a lot of people actually do like the lengthy, uh, the lengthy shows. You're not sit necessarily going to sit there and listen to it while you have two free minutes, but I, I have gotten some positive feedback from people who travel for work that they like to pop it in, they download it or stream it and listen to it through the car. And uh, I appreciate people taking the time to listen to it. Uh, let us know your thoughts. Let me know if you want uh, Joe to come back on the show at some point. We'll see if he's uh, ready and willing to come back and chat more about baseball <laughs> cards. I know. Uh, 2019 has been and will be a big year for you, Joe. I know you added a uh, significant card to the collection and, uh, you know, you're looking to uh, add some more cards at some point, but you might have to wait till, uh, wait till Chicago for that. Is that uh, something that's happening? Oh, hell yeah. I, 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 that's, that's my goal. Now that I own the 52 tops Mickey Mantle, uh, my next goal is to just save up for the, the national in Chicago and buy something pretty awesome. So that's the, uh, you know, between now and then that's, it's all about saving up. So there's little projects you can do too. You can do your, uh, vintage lot project and just kind of yep. have that one thing to occupy you for a couple <laughs> months. So it's, yep. a, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things about this hobby. There's, and I repeat this all the time. I just say there's a lot of layers to it. You enjoy the sport. You enjoy the memories of watching the sport, following the sport, and then the cards. There's reasons to collect, uh, whether it's whether it's to try and prospect a little bit and watch value to buy low, sell high if that's what you do. If it's just to add to the collection, build to the collection. There's so many things you can do. Grade cards, toss things in binders. Um, there's always something fun to do. So whether you have a lot to spend or a little to spend, you can have a tremendous amount of fun and a, a really good time in this hobby. So Joe, I appreciate you jumping on the show. If you have any final thoughts, feel free to, uh, let everyone know right now. No, I, this was, this was a lot of fun. I'm definitely down for, uh, doing this again um maybe we could do another one at the national or something like that. <laughs> I, that was something that i thought about doing last year i was like dude i should do a live one at the national it'll be freaking awesome but yeah, that, then I, I quickly realized i was like oh man there's so much going on that's not gonna happen but <laughs> but it's something to uh certainly consider that would be uh be a lot of fun and that's something that we definitely do for the people um that follow the YouTube channels, you will certainly see live videos. You will see recorded videos to get published later. Um, there's a lot of video making and collaboration going on. And that to me is one of the uh, most entertaining and fun parts of the national checking out the cards is obviously awesome. That's why we all go there. But I know from my perspective, being in the Philadelphia area, I'm able to get to a few card shows that are significant card shows. They're not quite the national, but they're pretty big oh, during yeah. the course of the yeah. year. And Joe, uh, being from the New York area, there's some smaller shows, but there's also some bigger shows that you're able to attend during the year. So we have yeah. those opportunities to go to card shows. And in the year 2019, you have so many online areas to buy cards like eBay and stuff. The cards are great at the National and there's amazing stuff to see. And it's definitely a great place to pick up some awesome stuff. But uh, to me, 
the number one thing is going out there and meeting up with people that you've interacted with uh, over the years and talked to and hanging out is just, it's a great time and talking about cards and everything else is, uh, it's awesome. So I look forward to you uh, being able to partake in that experience a little bit. Right. And hopefully my flight makes it this year. So <laughs> let's hope so. Let's, let's hope you, uh, you make it and everything goes, uh, goes smoothly and you're not, you're not recording videos on boats, all excited. And then <laughs> next thing you know, being just an utter disappointment. Uh, I got my fingers crossed. All right, man. I appreciate you listening and I appreciate everyone out there, uh, being involved in the show, posting your thoughts. Joe, thanks for joining me, and I'll talk to everyone next time. Have a great one. Thanks, guys.